I'm going to ask Danny to come and lead us in prayer, and then we're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. So if you brought your Bible with you this morning, open up. We've been there for several weeks. We have a few more to go as we are pulling the stories out of the Gospel of John and finding ourselves in the midst of them. Danny, lead us. Pray with me, please. Father, uh, we look forward to the message this morning. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful time we had singing and praising you together. God, you are lovely. You're wonderful. You're our creator and our God, and you've made a way through your son, Jesus. Thank you for that. And uh, uh, thank you for the people that uh, make up the church family here in Libby. We're so thankful and excited about all the things you do for us. So we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We are going to make our way to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, but before we get there, I want you to join me in the 20th chapter. John chapter 20, verse 30. Listen to what John writes. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What an intriguing statement from John. He wants us to know, and he does a great job of illustrating this, that during the 33 years of Jesus' life, and particularly the three years of his public ministry, he did a number of things that we know nothing about. They're not recorded in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record them either. There are a lot of things that Jesus did that we're only going to learn about when we get to heaven. John would go ahead in John chapter 21 and drive that point home this way. Turn over just one page, will you? John 21, verse 25, and listen. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If everything Jesus did, if every miracle that he performed had been written down, there are no libraries large enough to contain the volumes that it would require to have recorded all of those things. Doesn't that just make your imagination run wild? Boy, it does mine. But John would tell us this in John chapter 20, that the things that he chose to record in his book were chosen for two very specific purposes. Listen again to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, I chose the stories that I did. I chose the miracles that I did for two very specific reasons, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might believe unto salvation. Those were his reasons for grabbing all of these things out of everything that Jesus did and putting them in this book. Now let's take a, a quick glance at the statistics of the Gospel of John. This might surprise you a little bit. There are 21 chapters in this book. In those 21 chapters, there are 879 verses. In those 879 verses, there are 15,635 words. And in those 15,635 words, there are only seven miracles that are recorded. Only seven. Jesus performed so many miracles that there are not enough books that could be contained in a library that would actually hold all of the stories of those miracles. And John said, there's just seven I want you to know about. 
There are just seven that I believe are so important that they could change your life. Those seven are pretty impressive. They're pretty amazing. We have been looking at the last of those seven for the past two weeks, and we're going to be back in it today. It is the raising of Lazarus. That is the last recorded miracle of Jesus by John in his gospel before the resurrection of Jesus himself. It is not random that this was chosen. It is not random that it is placed where it is. There is a very specific purpose. So let's go back in and take a look at it. John chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 38. Now I'm not going to walk you through the entire miracle because Deanie and Matt have been doing that for the last two weeks. So we're going to get right to the raising of Lazarus. This is John 11 verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a miracle. What a miracle. And here's what I want you to know as we move forward in this. It is not random. It was chosen on purpose. In fact, it was chosen for two purposes. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might believe unto salvation. This miracle shows us those two things in very powerful ways. Now let me show you what else it does. It is the crescendo, it is the peak of the seven miracles that John recorded. Here's a simple way to walk through those, and you'll see what I mean, that it's the peak of them when we get to it. These are the seven miracles of John's book. We have gone through them over the course of the past few weeks, so hopefully it resonates with you just a little bit. Miracle number one can be defined this way. It is the miracle of turning water into wine. In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, John is showing that Jesus came to take us from the stone-cold and empty way of man's religion into a living and joyful relationship with him. That's the foundation. That's the baseline that the other miracles are going to build upon. Here's miracle number two. It's the healing of the official son. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Show us that we are saved by grace through faith. Every one of us, that is the way we are saved. Miracle number three will build on that. It's the healing at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, John shows us our own futile works are insufficient to save ourselves. We need Jesus to save us, because on our own steam, we will never pull it off. Miracle number four, it's the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it's a demonstration of his supernatural care and provision for those who seek him. When we understand that we are saved by faith through grace, and we get into that relationship with the Lord, we're going to get to a place of provision. That's exactly what this miracle demonstrates for us. Miracle number five, it's walking on water. 
John chapter 6, verses 16 through 25, shows that because of His miraculous power, we can easily accomplish things through Him that, we, that would be all but impossible on our own. With Christ, all things are possible. And if we will keep our eyes on Him, we can do the unthinkable. Isn't that cool? Miracle number six, healing of the man born blind. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, reveals that if we will allow it, He can cause even the lowliest person born spiritually blind to see and believe. Salvation is for everyone. It is not exclusive. It does not prohibit anyone from coming to Him. Salvation is available to every person that will allow Jesus to touch them. And then there's miracle number seven. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, in the first 44 verses, we find a promise that all who believe in Him will live even though they die. And those who live and believe will never die. That's the peak. That's the crescendo. When we understand the six miracles leading up to the seventh, and we stand at the seventh, believing in Jesus Christ and believing in Him unto salvation, it is like a person that has climbed a mountain and is standing on the peak and is able to say, I know why I got here. This is amazing. I get it. There are a lot of people that look at folks that climb mountains that say, I don't understand why they would do that. I don't know why they would climb one. But then after they have and they have stood on the peak, they look out and say, I get it. I understand. That's what the seventh miracle of John and John 11 is all about. It is standing on the peak, able to say, I get it. It is our opportunity to say, Jesus has come to give me life, to give it to me abundantly, and to give it to me eternally. I get it. This is what it's all about. I believe that so strongly that I want to invite those of you that are Christian. I'm not just throwing an invitation out to the church, but to the Christians. Those that have made your way through all seven of those miracles and you understand what this one's about. To stand with me and let's just say it together. If you are Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ and you have believed unto salvation, stand up right where you're at. We're going to say this together. Pretty simple little statement. I get it. Ready? One, two, three. I get it. Now say it like you're standing on the top of the mountain looking around at this incredible view. Are you ready? I get it. That's John chapter 7. Go ahead and have a seat again. That's John 11. That's the raising of Lazarus from the dead that we might be able to say, I get it. John would need a little bit of help in order to drive that idea home so the Apostle Paul would come behind him with a couple of other passages to help us understand it in its entirety. These are found in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, starting in verse 19. Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all we ever want from Jesus are the blessings of this life, we don't get it. And we are to be pitied more than anyone else. If all you want from Jesus is the ability to rub a magic lamp and have Him meet your needs, you don't get it. There's more to it. Jesus wants a face-to-face relationship with you when this life is over that will last forever. That's what we mean when we say, I get it. I want that relationship too. But in order for us to get there, something had to be defeated. That's the enemy that all of us face. Found again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, Paul says very pointedly, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
We all have to face it, every one of us, unless you are one of two people, Elijah and Enoch, you will face death. There are only two people in all of recorded history that haven't. That's those two guys. Now, there are some that won't when Jesus comes back for his church. We'll be taken up into heaven if that happens before we leave this earth through death. But otherwise, we will all face it. But the Bible says Jesus defeated it. And he defeated it for every one of us. This is the cool part of Lazarus' story. Jesus performed this miracle prior to his own resurrection so that we could understand that resurrection from the dead and the defeating of death is available to all of us as well as him. If he had risen from the grave without bringing someone like Lazarus out of the tomb, we could have spiritualized the idea of resurrection and never personalized it. But through Lazarus, we have the ability to personalize the resurrection and recognize that Jesus defeated death on our behalf as well as his. And therefore, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to let it hang over us like a dark cloud. We can trust God knowing that he has already defeated this giant enemy that we all face so that we can be with him forever. Let's just say it together again. Ready? One, two, three. I get it. That's what this miracle is all about. That's why it's recorded where it is. Yet it leads to a lot of familiar questions. People ask this all the time. If Jesus has defeated death, and if he raised Lazarus from the tomb, if he has that ability, and he loves us, then why do we go through difficult times? Why is that still necessary? Why do we have to face those moments? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. Because that's where faith is at. That's how faith grows. If Jesus removed all of those things from us, there would never be a need for us to trust him. If God removed from us all of the challenges of life, there would never be a place for him to refine us. If God removed from us all of the struggles that we have to endure in this world and just made it smooth sailing, there would never be a place of trust and faith unto relationship. So these things still exist. One of the beautiful parts of this story in John chapter 11 are the raw emotions that come out. You heard them. You heard exactly what was happening. Martha, oh, blessed Martha, stands in front of the tomb with Jesus when Jesus says, roll the stone away. And Martha says, don't roll the stone away. He's been in there for four days, Jesus. It's a long time. It's going to smell pretty bad. Don't roll the stone away. That's Martha. Martha's very practical. Don't roll the stone away. And Jesus says to her, Martha, didn't I tell you? And didn't you believe that if you will trust me, you're about to see the glory of God? Oh, Lord, I believe, but I also know how bad this is going to smell. Don't roll the stone away. That was Martha. Mary was so upset, she couldn't even hardly come to Jesus. Then the Bible says that Jesus did something remarkable in and of himself. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five 35 is the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. There's been a lot of speculation about why Jesus shed those tears. People have come up with a number of different ideas. Some believe that he was weeping on behalf of Mary and Martha. He knew how sad they were, and he knew what their grief looked like, so Jesus wept. 
There are other people, and I'm counted in this number, that believe that when Jesus cried, he was crying not for Mary and Martha, but for Lazarus, and not because Lazarus had died, but because he was about to call Lazarus back. Lazarus was in paradise. Jesus was about to call his friend. That's what the Bible calls him, a friend of God, the one whom Jesus loved. He was about to call the one that he loved from paradise back into this broken, fallen world. So Jesus wept. We know that he wasn't crying for himself because Jesus understands death so differently than we do. So his tears were being shed for somebody else in the midst of all of that. There is an unsupported church tradition that says that when Lazarus was called out of the grave, he lived another 30 years. Now, the 30 years is pretty well supported, but the unsupported tradition says that he never smiled again. After he came out of the tomb, called out of paradise, Abraham's bosom, he never smiled again. Maybe that's why Jesus wept. But like I said, that's an unsupported church tradition. What we know is this. Jesus' tears had something to do with the people that he cared so much about. They were in what has been aptly referred to as the land between. Things had been turned upside down for them. This is a good definition of the land between. Take a look at this. It's a place where everything normal is interrupted. Their normal had been interrupted when Lazarus died. Everything was changed. So Jesus knows all of the emotions that exist in a place like that. In a place where normal has been turned upside down, where it's been inverted, when normal has been poured out and you're left with the abnormal. So Jesus wept. He shed tears for his friends, for those that he loved. A fellow named Jeff Mannion would describe the land between like this. It's really good. The land between can be profoundly disorienting. It also provides a space for God to do some of his deepest work. Many seasoned spiritual advisors propose that this is the only space in which radical transformational growth occurs. God intends for us to emerge from this land radically reshaped. But while offering a greenhouse for growth, the land between can also be a desert where faith goes to die. Your response will determine whether your journey through this barren place will result in spiritual life or spiritual death. You decide. Jesus has walked through the land between himself, and he has walked through it with a lot of other people. And he knows the choices that are made in the land between. Some choices are made to follow him and to grow closer to him and to be faithful and remain faithful. But other people will make choices to walk away from him, to leave him. It's a place of spiritual death. The land between is a tough place for people to be but it can also be a good place. There are a number of different ways that we find our way into the land between. Unexpected unemployment is a portal to the land between. When the boss comes in and says, hey, we've got to make some cuts and your name's at the top of the list. We need to get everything out of here by five o'clock. You're in the land between. Normal has been interrupted. When the person that you have shared your life with comes and says, I don't love you anymore and I want a divorce, you're in the land between. It's a difficult place. Doctor's appointments are open doors to the land between as well. All you have to hear are the words, it's malignant, and you know what it means to have your normal interrupted, turned upside down, just turned upside down and poured out. 
Hope is a long ways off. It's a distant idea. Car wrecks can lead to the same thing, and not just fatal car wrecks, but car wrecks that debilitate a person, that changes their health by changing their body. It changes their entire world. Their definition of self or their identity is gone. They're in the land between. Funerals, of course, do the same thing. So do unexpected financial setbacks. Whether they come from the choices that we make or whether they just come from life, And sometimes life is how we end up in the land between. Life touches us, and we find ourselves in these deserts wandering around, wondering what the future holds, wondering what might happen, wondering if there is any way through it. Sometimes we get there as a direct result of our sin choices, and we're in the land between, where normal has been disrupted, where normal has been destroyed, and we don't even know if there is a future. It can be very difficult. If we don't have a map, it can be like wandering in a desert. Tina and I just drove for the last five years through the Mojave Desert. We did all of that in two weeks. We drove through this desert place wondering over and over and over again what it would be like to be lost there. There seems to be a lot of people lost in deserts. And if you don't have a map that shows you the way out, it's hopeless. The Bible thankfully gives us maps and shows us how to make our way through the land between that we might find normal again. It might be a new normal in Christ, but we can find it again. Those maps are pretty dramatic. There's three of them that are really good. I would call them the tip of the spear in the land between teaching. First one is found in the Exodus the last part of the book of Genesis and the entire book of Exodus. We're not going to go through that this morning, obviously, but I am starting just this morning a study in Sunday school on the Exodus and what it means to follow the Hebrew people through the land between, both the good and the bad, and there's a lot more bad than there is good, so we can learn from their mistakes as they made their way through the land between into the promised land, the protection and the providence of God. There's another one that is found at Pentecost when the disciples were waiting. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. Jesus had ascended into heaven. They were in the land between. They had had Jesus with them, but they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what to do, so they did this. How wise is this? They waited. They just waited. They sat and did nothing. That's their map. We will do nothing while we wait. And then God will respond, and sometimes that's the best thing we can do. If you have ever studied survival, you know this. When you are lost, the best thing you can do is sit down, stop moving, and let the searchers find you. Well, same thing for the disciples in Acts chapter 2. They just waited, and then God showed up. That's a map in and of itself. But the third one is right here in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. We can find our way through by learning from the stories that are there, by learning what it was like for them in the land between so that we can grow from it, so that we can take the lessons from it and learn a new life. So let's do that this morning as we wrap this thing up. Let's just learn from them by looking at what life was like on the backside of the land between after Lazarus came out of the tomb. There's some great stuff here. Go with me to John chapter 12. Now, in order to get there, we have to let our imaginations run wild for just a minute, at least I do, so 
follow me as my imagination runs through this. What if the stone had been rolled away and Jesus stood in front of the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. What if Lazarus had said, no, (laughs) I'm in paradise. I'm in Abraham's bosom. This place is amazing. No, I'm not coming. You want me to come back there and take care of my sisters? Have you ever lived with my sisters? I'm not coming. I'm in a good place, Lord. Don't make me come. See, for Mary and Martha in the land between, when their world had been turned upside down, They had lost their protection. They had lost their provision. All of this happened during a time when women were not well respected and very few of them had the ability to take care of themselves. They were safe and provided for in their father's home. They were safe and provided for in their husband's home. But if they didn't have a protector and a provider, they were left to their own devices and the choices were very difficult. Let your imagination run wild on that as well. We don't have to fill in those blanks. That's what life was looking like for Mary and Martha, and maybe that's part of why they were so upset. Certainly their grief was there, but they may have been thinking here in the land between, we have no idea what the future is going to hold. So what would have happened if Lazarus had said, no! When Jesus was calling him back, he was calling him back to take care of these two ladies. He was calling him back to make sure that they were safe. And he was calling him back to be a testimony, that his life would be a testimony. And it wasn't going to be easy. So Lazarus could have said, no. There are a lot of people who have been called out of the land between that have said no. Some of them are non-Christians. When the Lord has called them out, they've said no. I am comfortable right where I'm at. I like my sin. I like the consequences of it. I like my life. I'm not coming And they stay right where they're at. There are Christians that have been called out and they have chosen to stay right where they are at rather than responding to God. And what a tragedy that is. Because once God calls us out of the land between, something pretty miraculous is going to take place. Whether that is salvation or whether that is a new purpose, something miraculous is going to happen. And that's what happened for these three. This is John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now again, my imagination spins out of control here. So just just follow me. This isn't in the Bible. You're not going to find this anywhere else. This is just out of Phil's imagination. Here's the way I picture this. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, take off his grave clothes. Lazarus looks at him after he says, thanks for this, Lord. Then he looks at Jesus and he says, hey, you want to come over for dinner? (laughs) Maybe that's it. Pretty simple because Lazarus is now reclining at his own table with Jesus. Watch what else is happening. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Martha was serving. Because that was her expression of worship, she was just serving. And Mary was anointing. That was her expression of worship. She was anointing Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus blessed all of their service. 
Lazarus, Mary, Martha. He just said, leave them alone. They've just come through the land between and they're with me and, and it's all good. They're worshiping. But watch what happens now. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus was the most wanted man in all of Judea. The Pharisees, the Jews, wanted to kill him, and the Romans were going to allow them to. But Judas just found, or Judas, Lazarus just found his way to the second spot on that list. He was the second most wanted man in all of Judea because his very existence was a testimony to the power of God. So they wanted to kill Lazarus. As long as he was alive, their way of life was in question, so they wanted to kill him. Pick up with me in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Lazarus became a preacher unlike any other. People were flocking to Jesus because of Lazarus. People were coming, even at the triumphal entry, singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because of Lazarus. Because Lazarus stood before him, because the grave did not hold him, because of the resurrection of Lazarus. That's amazing. On the other side of the land between, after he came out of that grave, after he came out of that tomb, his life became a ministry. People were flocking to know Christ because of him, because he had come out, because he had been unbound, because things had been taken off of him. That is actually one of my favorite parts of Lazarus' story in verse 44 of chapter 11. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. When Jesus calls people out, he unbinds them. Now, if he's calling us out of a grave like Lazarus, that means take off the grave clothes. But if he is calling you out of the land between, he is going to unbind you from all kinds of other things that hold you back and hold you down. I was sitting in my computer, just made a list of some of the emotions that exist in the land between. It's things like this, anger, confusion, loneliness, aloneness, bitterness, disappointment, chaos, pain unforgiveness, lostness, lack of belonging, isolation, deafening, silence, grief, and sadness, and even apathy. All of those are the emotions that we wrestle with that bind us in the land between. But when Jesus calls us out, he says, unbind them. Take those things off and let them go. And that's the freedom that he calls us to. And that's the very reason that people were flocking to Jesus because of Lazarus. 
He'd been unbound and set free. Doesn't that sound great? To be unbound and set free, turned loose, not held in the land between any longer, moving into the promised land, moving into relationship. What a remarkable place. What a great place. Can't help but wonder, and I spent a lot of time these last couple weeks investigating this, what happened to Lazarus after this? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us. One of the places that I went and I spent a lot of time was in the crucifixion stories. I wanted to find Lazarus at the cross. Didn't find him there. I wanted to find him after the resurrection. I wanted to find Jesus talking to him after the resurrection. I didn't find him there. Went to the book of Acts. I wanted to find him counted among the believers of the early church. I didn't find him there. Went to Pentecost thinking he might have been on the southern steps of the temple. I didn't find him there. We don't know what happened to Lazarus. Again, my mind went pretty crazy on it. So I'll ask you, we're almost done, just chase this rabbit with me. Isn't it possible that when he was reclining at the table with Jesus, just days before Jesus would die, and I mean literally like two days before Jesus dies, maybe Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, things are about to get real. And it's going to turn pretty ugly here in Jerusalem. And they're coming after me and they're going to kill me. And it's going to be brutal. And then they're coming after you. You will be the next one. So you get out of town. And you go deep. And you get out of here as soon as this dinner is over. You disappear. Because they want to kill you, Lazarus. And you stay alive. Because your life is a testimony of me. You stay alive. So you get out of here. He wasn't at the crucifixion. He wasn't in Jerusalem, at least as far as we know, at the triumphal entry. He was nowhere to be found. Why? Why? All these people were flocking to Jesus because of Lazarus. Well, there is a well-supported church tradition that says that Lazarus went to the island of Cyprus. He left his home, everything that he knew, and he went to an island where he started a church. And that church began to make a huge impact. Strong probability that Barnabas became a believer because of Lazarus on the island of Cyprus. Strong probability that a number of other people became Christians because of Lazarus. 900 years after Jesus died, Lazarus more than likely lived 30 years after Jesus. So 900 years after Lazarus died, his tomb was found on the island of Cyprus, underneath a church. It had been venerated years before, but it had been hidden, and it was discovered underneath this church. All kinds of records were found with it about Lazarus's ministry that helped fuel some of the church traditions. And a lot of those are mythological. A lot of them are speculative. But one thing is for sure. You can see it today for yourself. Science backs it up. Archaeology backs it up. His tomb is on that island in a little town there, sitting underneath that church with this inscription on it. The worship team is going to come up here. As they're coming, I don't want you to be distracted by them. They're on their way up here, but I want you to look at this inscription. And I want you to look closely. This is written on the outside of his sarcophagus. Lazarus, four days dead, a friend of Christ. Now, isn't that curious? 
It is so curious that I want you to stare at that like it is a a Picasso painting and you're trying to figure out what that crazy artist was trying to do. Stare at this the same way and let some things start to lift off of that page for you. Four days dead, but here's his tomb. Four days dead, he's in the tomb. What what do you mean four days dead? Four days dead? What? What? If you were a person that was unfamiliar with the story of Lazarus, just to stare at this would have you scratching your head. But the last part of that, a friend of Christ. That's the best part. Four days dead, a friend of Christ. What's that mean? Well, that sets the stage for resurrection. That sets the stage for redemption. That sets the stage to understand a man who had been dead and was no longer dead, who had been bound and was no longer bound. Four days dead, but today he lives. Four days dead, but not now. Four days dead. He had to face the first death, but the second death had no impact on him. Four days dead, a friend of Christ. That's pretty good stuff. 900 years after Lazarus died, this was found. And people make their way to the island of Cyprus today so that they can see this. There's hope in it. Four days dead, a friend of Christ. Maybe this is what they meant when they wrote this. That Lazarus in those four days was undone by Jesus. And he was saved. And so as a result of that, death holds no power over him. He was undone by Jesus, and everything became different. He walked through the land between, and today he is with his Lord, his friend. He is with Jesus, and that's what's possible for all of us. We just have to get through the land between. Worship team is going to sing with us a song that we sang just a few minutes ago, and I hope you'll sing for all your worth. I got saved. We're going to talk about what it means to be undone and to find the mercy of Jesus and to be saved by that. But I know, I know, there are some of you that are in the land between. Your normal has been turned upside down and you don't know what the future holds. So I want to invite you to come up here to the front and I'll have an opportunity in just a minute to pray with you. Just come and stand, sit, whatever you want. I'll have a chance to pray with you. You take that first step towards getting out of the land between, and you have taken the best step, and the Lord will help lead the rest of the way. So take that step and come to the front. If you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, Deanie will be over here. You can go in there, and he will talk with you about what it means to be saved. Find somebody else to talk with you about what it means to be saved. But if you're in the land between, join us up front. It'll be my privilege to pray with you. Why don't you stand with us?